Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Arvind Hickman, Campaign's media editor, and today we're going to look at whether James Bond can rescue cinema advertising. We'll also discuss whether brands should be concerned by the latest Facebook revelations, and a bit later on we will review ads from Coca-Cola, Very.co.uk and Starling. I'm joined by Campaign's technology and gaming editor Simon Gwynn and two special guests from the world of cinema advertising. Davina Barker is a sales director at Digital Cinema Media, and Claire Turner is a sales director at Pearl and Dean. Welcome to you all. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Fantastic. To begin with, who here has seen the new Bond film, No Time to Die? I certainly have. Absolutely, of course we have. (laughs) Yes, I was there on the opening night. Fantastic. What were your thoughts about it, Claire? Did you enjoy the film? It is amazing. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I'm a big big fan of Daniel Craig and I think the way that his character has evolved over you know the last well his whole season of films has just been been really refreshing um, and we've got sort of more substance to Bond than I think we've ever had before you know cinema is back I mean we've we've been doing so well over the last few months with audiences returning but this is definitely a sort of pivotal moment. Uh, I'm sure Davina will will agree for our industry because it just feels like we've turned the corner, um, and the numbers are, are, are absolutely huge uh, for the film. But it's a, it's a great film. Great. Well, we'll come to the numbers in a sec. Davina, what were your thoughts about Bond? I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I think the UK loves Bond generally, don't we? We're a, we're a big um, big fan, but I think it just had moved on a pace. I loved the female characters in this one. They were definitely much feistier. There was more humour from them. Um, there were loads of things I hadn't expected. And it was just so refreshing to see big, high-end action on the big screen again um, and in a completely packed cinema. Um, it was really fab. The atmosphere was electric. Fantastic. Simon, what, what were your thoughts of the film? Well, uh, sorry to not bring any diversity of views to uh, to the discussion, but I agree it was it was superb. Um, I really wasn't a fan of the last Bond film, uh, Spectre, in 2015. I thought it was pretty silly, to be honest. But um, uh, so my expectations weren't necessarily through the roof. But it was really original. Um, some some great performances, really fantastic storyline. I love the opening. A completely different way to open a Bond film to to pretty much any of the the ones I've seen before. Um, so yeah, definitely recommended. The reason why I ask is that I read a piece this week about the impact Bond is having on cinema, which endured a torrid time during the COVID pandemic. Daniel Craig's final outing as 007 has smashed UK box office records, grossing more in its opening weekend than any other film in the history of the James Bond franchise. And it has become the biggest movie of the year after only four days in the cinema. Claire, just describe the sort of impact that it has had, uh, not just in terms of box office sales, but also in terms of advertiser interest. Yeah, I mean, it has really been uh, off the scale in terms of uh, delivering so far on box office and clearly admissions and then also for advertiser um, revenue. So I think the confidence from advertisers, which has been slowly building since we reopened on the 17th of May, has just sort of, you know, reached peak interest in time for Bond. I mean, everyone knows that the film's moved a few times, but um, it's landed in a perfect spot just as people are becoming more confident more of the population are now uh, double jabbed and you know people are more than happy to return to cinemas so I think you know the confidence that um, that we've seen around the film and I'm I'm sure Davina will concur you know we've had packed ad reels um, we're you know we're fully sold 
um, around the film. What's more crucial, um, or just equally as important, should I say, is that it will attract, the film will attract a broad range of audiences. So, so far, we've seen the 18 to 34s, you know, really keen to return to the cinema, um, but the slightly older audience have been a little bit reluctant. Um, and straw poll of one, I mean, we haven't got the numbers yet in terms of demographic profile, but my trip to my local cinema in Lewis, um, the audience was definitely sort of, you know, from teens through to grandparents. It was a real broad mix. So it'll be the first time for a lot of Bond audiences that they've been back to the cinema since, well, for a couple of years. So I think that, and, and obviously then they'll be exposed to the trailers that were shown, uh, that are being shown before the film. So I think for Q4, we can't really under, underestimate that this film will really sort of kickstart um, Q4. I mean, the market also is very short term in terms of uh, ad revenue. So, you know, we're, we're quite confident that we'll you know, that we'll, we'll have a very buoyant Q4. I'll touch a little bit in terms of the pipeline uh, later on. But uh, Davina, I just wanted to get your thoughts about the impact that Bond is having. It's a really good point that Claire makes about how this film sort of transcends generations and is attracting quite a broad range of demographics. Absolutely. And, and as she said, we saw younger audiences coming back pretty much straight away. As soon as the content was back, they were coming back. So we've had films like Shang-Chi doing really, really well over the last um, few weeks. But to get that um, older audience in, Bond makes a huge difference. And I think also just confidence for advertisers. You know, we've been so appreciative of how supportive agencies and advertisers have been over the last 18 months of cinema. But it's hard, isn't it, when you're planning and it's really important that your advertising is working hard for you and you don't know whether they're going to shut again or um, content's going to move. And I think the signal, as well as the success that the film has had in terms of audience figures, which have been huge. Um, It's also that signal of stability for cinema that the big releases are back. You can plan your campaigns again. You know, we're really lucky with cinema that normally, we know most of our content up to 18 months in advance, it's a really stable medium for people to plan around and guarantee some big cultural moments in their schedule. And, And that's confidence have been knocked over the last uh, year or so. So this is the big signal that we're back. Um, We know advertisers love Bond. They always have done because of the scale that it brings and the um, variety of audiences. But um, we're also seeing lots of confidence from them now going, right, you're back, you're open, you can deliver the big numbers again. What can we do as we go into Q4 and to 2022? I'm interested in sort of understanding what advertisers are looking for when it comes to a film like Bond. For example, are they just going in and looking for sort of premium gold spots or are they looking to, you know, as Bond as a part of a package of different films? What, what, what are you sort of getting from advertisers in terms of how they're investing in, in cinema with Bond? With Bond, um, because the demand is so high, for brands to ensure that they appear alongside the film, they buy into a, a film package. So they advertise with, with the film across every performance of the movie, across both ourselves and, and DCM. So it is, you know, it is, it, it's pretty much film pack activity um, with Bond. Yeah, I I think what they're looking for with Bond is that big cultural moment, that um, sort of old-fashioned term of water cooler moment that you're not getting from many places anymore. And something like Bond giving... You know, it, it's done two and a half million admissions over the DCM estate alone over the first four days. You're just not getting those audiences else, elsewhere. So I think that big impact, those big numbers in a really hard hit is 
what they're looking for. And God, is it a cultural moment? I don't know about you, but there is no platform that you can turn on at the moment and not see something about the run up to the film, how well it's done, uh, the premiere, etc. It's what everyone's talking about. And I think that's what brands are tapping into. Yeah, I mean, we're sort of used to seeing James Bond save the world, aren't we? Has he saved cinema? Is, is that a bit of a, a bit of hyperbole? Or, or is this really such a big impact that, that it's going to re- sort of resuscitate cinema from, what, from where it was maybe, say, you know, four or five months ago? I think speaking to um, some, of, some of the cinemas, some of our cinema partners, such as Everyman and a lot of our independents, you know, they definitely have been waiting for Bond and, you know, for them to go, you know, last year from being, you know, open, closed, open, closed, and then restrictions in terms of um, audience uh, capacities, for them now to be having, you know, completely full cinema screens and buzzing atmospheres in foyer and obviously concession sales uh, through the roof. I think for cinemas is it has come at exactly the right time. Okay. I'm just also interested, obviously this is a, a big, big movie. Uh, always was going to be, by the way. Um, I'm just interested in looking a little bit further ahead in, in terms of pipeline. The first thing I wanted to ask both of you, and you don't have to give me an exact figure, when you look at sort of uh, what you can get off advertisers um, in terms of CPMs, are we reaching sort of pre-COVID levels? Are, are things sort of getting back to how they were beforehand? Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're t- talking about absolute pricing, the demand for cinema is really high because it is delivering that hard to reach 1634 audience. And, you know, historically, people have always levelled at cinema, oh, you're quite expensive. Actually, with some of the inflation in the market right now, we're not. Um, so then you add in all the benefits of advertising in terms of undistracted audiences and amazing content, etc. And it's not having a, an impact on our on our pricing in, in that sense. And I think we'll see, we'll see demand just increasing. We're you know, we're so busy for quarter four already and looking into 2022 that I think the pipeline of content is also fantastic. We've got such pent up demand in terms of um, uh, films that haven't been released that um, next year's film slate looks amazing um, and will continue to deliver for advertisers. Yeah, I mean, I would add to that that, yeah, definitely for um, H2 this year, you know, we're looking we're looking really, really strong in terms of revenue. And we certainly, you know, getting back to the pre-COVID levels, um, it's been, you know, it's been very sort of gratifying the support that we've had, um, you know, over the last few months and seeing, you know, the big brands returning and looking into 2022, you know, we do, you know, demand is, is, is high. I think we, you know, with the busiest, certainly the busiest that we've, that we've been, um, since we've been back, it is, it is incredibly full on. And yeah, with what's happening in, uh, with TV at the moment is helping us somewhat and if yeah if you if you look you know we ultimately we've had so much sort of small screen time um over the last 18 months and second screening and all all that that happens at home for us to be able to go back and watch a film in you know the ultimate surroundings with a big screen and no distractions and just ultimate escapism and and the fact that the studios are now returning to their pre-covid business models um you know disney have announced that they're going back to an exclusive uh theatrical window which means that you won't have the day and date streaming it'll be it'll 
will be exclusive in cinemas first. Warners have done the same. Sony always supported, uh, supported the exclusive window. So we'll no longer have that, that sort of day-day activity going on, which is, which is, there's obviously a reason why the studios did that. They had to make money during the lockdown when cinemas weren't open. But, but now it's returning back to how it used to be, which is, which is again, another hugely positive signal for our industry. It's quite interesting that you mentioned that the streamers are starting to go back to that sort of theatrical window. One of the questions I actually wanted to ask looking at the pipeline um, is what sort of impact that that break from the big screen might be having in terms of viewing habits and in terms of, of interest, people coming back to the cinema. It sounds, though, like Bond has really been a catalyst for a lot of people desperate to get back in, in front of the big screen. Is there sort of any other broader impact that you think this sort of COVID period might have in cinema in terms of viewing habits, Davina? Um, the only thing that we potentially are seeing is a slight change in terms of people's um, daily lives and working from home a little more um, and therefore a bit more flexibility to go outside of Friday, Saturday night, you know, the eight o'clock showing. So we're definitely seeing people going a bit earlier in the evening because they can, they're at home and and perhaps even a flattening out of people going in, in the middle of the week slightly more. But Generally, I think um, the demand for cinema is high. All the research shows that people, as soon as the right film is there, they come back. I think also you need to see trailers in cinemas to know what you want to watch next. So the great thing about all these people going to Bond is they will have seen some fantastic trailers for all the content coming up. And that's when you really go, yeah, fancy that, don't I? And you think about booking your next next visit. So I think it will snowball as people see more content once they're in there um, to whet their appetite going forward. Well, that's fantastic news um, for cinema and and also for James Bond fans. Now, one platform that has had very few problems attracting advertisers, even during COVID, is Facebook. But could that be about to change? Simon, now you wrote a piece and campaign about a whistleblower who has revealed some rather concerning research and a culture that places profit before safety. What did the whistleblower expose? Well, first of all, Arvin, just to, to quickly answer the question that you posed there, I would say definitely, uh, no, it's, it's not about to change. Uh, it seems that very little, um, will uh, negatively, seriously impact, uh, the demand for advertising on Facebook at the moment. Whether that'll still be the case in years to come, uh, can't say at the moment, but it's certainly been, um, pretty, uh, bad week for, for Facebook. We're recording this on Tuesday, by the way. Um, last night was the great Facebook outage of, of 2021. Uh, as I'm sure we'll come to remember it, those of us who weren't lucky enough to um, be in the cinema watching No Time to Die were sat at home kind of endlessly trying to reload our Instagram and WhatsApp apps. But uh, back to um, uh, what you were asking me about. Um, So last month, the Wall Street Journal ran a a series of reports that they called the Facebook Files. um, And it was based on uh, quite a large volume of uh, internal documentation that had been leaked to uh, to the paper um, from a, a whistleblower who remained anonymous until Sunday when she appeared on um, the American TV show 60 Minutes. Her, her name is Frances Horgan or Haugen. I'm, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. And she was um, a product manager at Facebook until earlier this year when she uh, made the decision to leave. Um, and before she did that, she copied all these these documents, uh, intending to um, to leak them to the press. So some of the things that the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, report uncovered included um, a finding that Instagram, in some respects, had a potentially quite damaging effect on the mental health of teens. There was one particular stat that was uh, pulled out, 
which was that for teen girls, it was more likely than not to have a negative impact on their body image, which is obviously uh, potentially a very, very damaging consequence of, of using a platform like that. Another area of focus was on something called XCheck, which is a thing that Facebook uses to manage its high profile users. So generally speaking, when an, an ordinary Facebook user post something that violates Facebook's terms, it's uh, dealt with quite quickly and usually taken down and the, the user might be given a warning or a suspension. But in the case of high profile users, they take a different approach. Uh, there may be some good reasons uh, for doing this. But what it means is that in certain circumstances, there's been things that have been posted by high profile users that have clearly violated uh, the terms that have been left up longer than you would uh, expect. So one example is Neymar, the footballer. I think two years ago, he was accused of, of rape. Uh, and he did a Facebook live video responding to the allegations. And in that video, he showed WhatsApp messages from his accuser, including uh, nude photographs um, and, and various other things. And it was it was pretty horrendous. Um, but um, the way that Facebook dealt with that suggested from the perspective of the Wall Street Journal's criticism uh, that they were reluctant to take the same kind of action against someone with Neymar's status who has a huge volume of uh, followers on the platform as they would with uh, an ordinary person. Some of these revelations are, are quite concerning. I, I think the, the part about you know how this is having an impact on teens' mental health, for example, would be one where on a personal level, if you have children, you'd be quite concerned about it. I'm just interested to hear from you, Claire and Davina, what you think will be the impact of these revelations on advertisers and brands. Do you think this will be enough for them to pause what they're doing with Facebook or to challenge Facebook? I think that, you know, if we just go back to the Cambridge Analytica, you know, scandal that happened a few years ago, we, we saw relatively uh, little action or change from advertisers. But I do think more and more, I mean, the AA, the AA's sort of three big pillars are, you know, trust in advertising is number one. And I think that brands have a responsibility to create a society that they want their children to grow up in. And I think that brands have to think about, you know, the company that they keep. I think one of the, the key things out of the, um, the allegations was that action from Facebook is only taken uh, against sort of less than 5% of hate content. So as a brand, you've got to be thinking if 95% of hate content is left unchecked, you know, I just think that um, you've got to think as a brand about the context in where your advertising appears. You have to be mindful, you know, as you know, we all want to be good citizens and that shouldn't change when you're part of a corporation. You have to behave in a way that's the right thing, that's the right thing to do. And trust in advertising is at an all time low. And we've got to change that. You know, we've got to change that as an industry. Um, so I do hope that brands, you know, do put pressure on on Facebook and um, it will be interesting to see what happens. It's, it's, it's a really good point that you make, Claire, about brand safety. Davina, I want to sort of throw that at you as well. Uh, I mean, it, it's quite an obvious point to make, but it is it's also not the case that a lot of advertisers, Facebook is just something they can't drop. You know, Facebook and Google control so much of the digital advertising market. Uh, you know, they may have concerns about it, but what can they really do? I mean, sadly, I think they still can do a lot. There are lots of other options and platforms and ways to talk to your audiences. I mean, 
the volume of brand advertising on Facebook seems to be slightly less perhaps than before. I think Claire's point about just because you can doesn't mean you should is, is really, really valid. And I think as well as the brands, and let's be honest, it's got to be the advertisers and their money that's going to uh, have the impact on them. Also, there is a, a focus on Facebook. They've often hidden behind the, well, it's UGC and we can't control of our content. But actually, the minute you start taking money from advertisers, you become a media owner and therefore you do have a responsibility. But I think what's really interesting about this particular look into their behaviour is if they're curating the content, whether that's by leaving certain things up longer or allowing higher profile users more flexibility, you're curating the content and therefore you need to be regulated like a media owner and have that responsibility because that's what you're doing. Mm, It's a really good point you raised there. I think I should jump in and uh, and point out part of uh, Facebook's Uh, response to this reporting, which is uh, specifically on the uh, Instagram finding that we we talked about on um, the impact on teen mental health. So they did actually publish a blog post uh, featuring the full decks that the stat mentioned was taken from. And it's it's interesting because uh, it does uh, their their suggestion was that the Wall Street Journal had plucked this one thing that makes Instagram look bad and it does it certainly does you know it shows that uh, in terms of body image for teen girls uh, Instagram's more likely to have a negative and positive positive effect but on a series of other measures so things like social comparison eating issues sleep issues loneliness and anxiety um, on all of those other issues Instagram they found was more likely to uh, make those things better than worse and for teen boys. That's true of every single uh, measure, including uh, body image. But I think the point does remain that this is research that they haven't made public. Um, It's something that uh, users need to know about and advertisers need to know about. Because of that, I think there is a reasonable case uh, for the point that Francis Horgan uh, made, which is that Facebook is a company that puts profit before safety. And I think if you look at its behaviour over the years, it's been very, very driven by growth, as rapid growth as possible. And they have tackled some very difficult issues over the years. They've made some positive changes. And it's interesting, I think, that she makes a point of not wanting to criticise Mark Zuckerberg or calling him a bad person or anything. But but the way that Facebook operates as an entity uh, is so focused on that growth that perhaps doesn't prioritise these other things, which really are more important. Yeah, it's a good point. Just final word quickly, Simon, before we go on to our ad reviews. Do you think that we will see much change or much action or do you think it looks to be business as usual? Well, I think we probably will and we won't. I think Facebook is it's such a complicated company and operation uh, that it does continually make positive changes uh, to the, the way that its platforms operate. So I suspect that, you know, there may be some positive uh change out of this it might be quite significant but it might also be uh, difficult to see amongst things that are still going wrong and I'm sure that as long as Facebook remains such a, a massive platform with uh, billions of worldwide users uh, that there's always going to be social harm caused by it um, and that's something that's very difficult to grapple with. Well I guess we shall wait and see what happens and, and how the Facebook revelations um, pan out. I want to move on to our ad reviews now. And just a quick caveat, uh, Claire and Davina are obviously going to be commenting on a personal basis, uh, not on behalf of their companies, because some of these guys that we're going to review are probably clients. The first one we're going to start off with is Coca-Cola's new Real Magic platform. Now, the soft drinks giant released a campaign, One Coke Away From Each Other, which taps into the gaming world. In the film, players battle it out during an esports competition, 
and when one player cracks open a coke, the game's characters stop fighting and come together. Claire, what did you make of this ad? It is uh, cinematic, the, the monsters battling, but I did find it um, a little bit cringeworthy. Well, which parts of particular did you find cringeworthy? It was, uh, you know, where they all sort of, you know, down tools and, uh, you know, started to hug it out. You know, it just felt, I've never seen a superhero film that ends like that. I, I just thought it was, you know, have a Coke and then the world is all good. <laughs> so, yeah, it, so, yeah, make the world a better place. It's a really good sentiment. But I just think in the, you know, in the harsh, I mean, I'm not an esports e uh, aficionado by any stretch, but I just think in that world, I, I think it'd be pretty cutthroat. And I suppose that is the whole point, isn't it? That, yeah, you know, in that world, you can still do, you know, make make positive change and all, all can be good <laughs> and we can all come together. Well, what, what did you think, Davina? Did you get a little bit teary-eyed when the monsters or the big ogre dropped his axe and he, he came up and wanted to hug it out with someone he was trying to batter five seconds ago? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> and it's really easy to make me cry, but this one didn't do it for me. Um, I... To start with, I was like, oh, it looks amazing. I'm just not feeling it. Maybe it's because it's not aimed at me. And I started to read some of the reviews from people who know a lot more about esports. And I think it, they've slightly missed the mark. The graphics are amazing. It's a nice principle. I'm not sure it quite hits where it's supposed to. What are your thoughts, Simon? Well, I think there's a lot of very interesting uh, things about this. So the the, the kind of message of the ad is very in keeping with the, the classic uh, Coke idea of, you know, bringing the world together. Um, but I, I think Davina might be right. I mean, it, it did seem strange to me that it ends with this everybody coming together and loving each other, which is really not what uh, competitive uh, esports is about. It's uh, it's about rivalry and winning and uh, emerging victorious against, against all odds. I think uh, it makes a lot of sense for Coke to target a gaming audience. You know, I'm sure that uh, caffeinated um, fizzy drinks are probably pretty popular with esports players and, uh, you know, hardcore console and um, PC gamers. I like the fact that it kind of gives us a, a metaverse story where... Uh, the the characters within the games uh, are almost uh, acting as avatars for their their players, um, but it did also actually remind me of something else, which I think Coke will be uh, very unhappy to hear about, which was that terrible Pepsi ad with Kendall Jenner uh, a few years ago. Oh no! Um, which you know widely regarded as an, a terrible misstep that really made light of the. Uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protests. It's not the same thing at all, but unfortunately that was something that came to mind. Well, I, I'm going to very respectfully disagree with all three of you. I have a teenage son who loves gaming. In fact, I love gaming as well, and he enjoyed this one. So, you know, I, I think for the actual audience that it's trying to reach, it's it's a Coke ad. It's a big famous brand. Yes, they do love their, their soft drinks and, and caffeinated fizzy drinks. Um, and I, I just feel like it really it really speaks to them, even though it, it's clearly not realistic. You're not going to play an esports competition and then want, want to hug it out with, with your rivals. But, you know, it, it, as someone was saying, it's very much in keeping with, with Coke's message of bringing people together and that sort of stuff. And I, I thought it was quite nice, actually. I, I enjoyed it. I think Arvind... Uh you know, to Davina's point that we're just too old to appreciate is probably what you're saying there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to mention my age on air, but okay, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> right, let's move along. Simon, um, tell us about the Starling's new ad. That's one that you sort of called out. Yeah, so I've actually chosen this for our uh, pick of the week this week. I thought it was a really great ad. It's by Wonderhood uh, Studios, and um, I spoke to 
their chief creative officer, Aidan McClure, and Starling's head of brand, Rachel uh, Caron, last week. Uh, it's a brilliant production, this ad. So uh, what it shows you is a kind of um, quite a, almost a cliched uh, but quite stylized uh, traditional bank scene with a lot of people standing in queue looking bored and frustrated, um, which... Maybe isn't always the case with uh, going to the bank, but um, you know I think we can all kind of relate to that idea. Um, and it's promoting Starling as this digital first bank. Uh, so the, the protagonist takes out her phone, kind of opens up Starling, and then flies off into the sky, liberated from the constraints of traditional banking. It's a, it's a superb production. It's got this incredible aerial work. She does all these somersaults and, and spins, and uh, it was really interesting hearing from Rachel and Aidan about how all that kind of stuff was achieved and they also t- told me about how it's it's full of these visual met- metaphors for the um, the various uh, kind of aspects of the Starling brand uh, in terms of whether it it wins me over um, I'm, I'm not quite sure to be honest uh, as they acknowledge you know it's very difficult getting people to change their bank some people stay with a single bank their entire life you know they might go to university kind of get get the special offer for the rail card or something that you, you get with it and then just never get around to changing it because it it's pretty difficult for banks to differentiate their products but I do think that they have quite an intelligent brand positioning unlike uh, Monzo and Revolut which are the other main digital banks they are trying to uh, present quite a mature image and, and ensure that people actually uh, do trust them and, and the feedback they have you know the kind of ratings um, and the number of people who are switching to Starling does show that they seem to be getting that message across. Okay what did you th- what did you make of it Davina? I thought Starling did a really good job of showing the flexibility of being a digital bank I thought it was incredibly high-end beautifully shot really well made creative um that delivered on their key key messaging yeah i thought i I did really enjoy it i thought it was um it did feel a bit sort of harry potter gringotts-esque you know that sort of traditional bank and then off she goes sort of flying off into the air and i just thought it got the message across in a really simple way about this is a new way of banking you don't have to you know do the old sort of queuing in your lunch hour to get to to get to see the cashier the music the combination of the music and the visuals as you say Simon it did feel very sort of high quality um, high production values and yeah another sort of fantastic cinematic ad and our final ad for this week is one by very.co.uk Um, An early Christmas ad. The ad follows a confused trick-or-treaters visiting a house that is already decorated for Christmas. Yes, the best excuse is Christmas. It's the excuse of the year. For Christmas lights on Happy Night. Lince pie season's here. Get a pass because it's Christmas. It's the excuse of the year. Simon, what did you make of this? And, And having a Christmas ad come out so early... I'm going to be honest with you, Arvind. Uh, it made me feel sick watching this. <laughs> I, um, it's bad enough in a normal year. Um, I, I mean, I think, first of all, be, being a first mover maybe doesn't hurt for, for very.co.uk. Um, it, it means that they will have uh, salience with, with people watching this that uh, later brands who were launching their ads at the start of November, say, um, aren't going to necessarily enjoy. But yeah, I'm not a fan of Christmas starting in October and just the circumstances of this year. I am very nervous that 
this Christmas is not going to go well. I had a horrific time last year, as I'm sure plenty of our, our listeners did. I was stranded in Glasgow. I wasn't able to visit my family. Fortunately, I could go around to my uh, friend's house on, on Christmas Day, so that was nice. But it was it was a pretty miserable, lonely time, um, and I'm just not ready to be thinking about Christmas. Sorry, very <laughs> Claire. Claire, what did you make of the very dot co that you get? I did. I did appreciate the sort of Mickey taking, sort of uh, you know, tongue in cheek uh, nod to Christmas just getting earlier and earlier every year, and that little scene where you know the kids are trick or treating and they're all there in their Christmas sweaters. I think to get ahead of the curve, you know, it, it probably it probably will work for them. It was you know it was a, a typical sort of traditional Christmas ad. And, you know, I think that edge that they might get. But yeah, I think it could be Marmite, Simon, to your point. You know, it will it will sort of could upset half the viewers with, uh, with you know, not wanting it to come. But then there's always the other camp that just want Christmas to get here straight away. My kids will love it. You know, they'll be so happy that they can start talking about Christmas early. Do you know what? I quite liked it. I love a Christmas ad, but I was thinking, oh, really? Already? And then I thought they handled it really well and a a bit different than anyone else has done with it before. Um, It's probably a smart move. If the retailers can get people panic buying for Christmas, they'll probably be really pleased, won't they? So, um, yeah, I thought it was well handled and I quite liked it. Yeah, I have to say, I really enjoyed this one as well. It felt so fresh and different from normal financial services ads. And it sort of really positioned styling as, as sort of a challenger brand, if you like, in that space that does things a bit differently. And I think it's quite memorable as well. The, the production quality is very high. I thought the music was quite catchy. And I think it, it, it'll do well. Um, I think you know, people will, will watch this ad. They'll remember the brand and, and recall it. So, yeah, nice one. I'm afraid that is all we have time for in this segment. Thanks for joining us, Davina, Claire and Simon. Also, a big thanks to our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. Please do visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletters so you can stay up to date with everything that is going on in Adland. Once again, thanks for joining us. On behalf of the campaign team, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.